narcissism, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, histrionic personality disorder, alcoholism. These are just some of the labels that frequently get tossed around in custody litigation. My guest here today is going to talk with us about psychological testing, how we know when these labels apply, what they mean if they do apply, and how we can help parents navigate the very uncertain waters of co-parenting after a divorce. Dr. Victoria Harvey is a licensed psychologist, and she frequently is called upon by the courts to conduct psychological testing to really help us better understand the patterns that we're seeing. Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so first of all, one of the things we're talking about are these labels get tossed around a lot. And in, and I want to ask you as a psychologist, what, what do these labels mean? I mean, what are we really looking at when we talk about like narcissism and bipolar and, and the host of labels? Certainly. Well, I think one of the first things we have to differentiate is between kind of the pop culture labels versus the clinical labels. So when psychologists use these labels, we are referring to a specific set of criteria that a person has demonstrated, whether they're symptoms that the person experiences internally or signs that are observable to other people and behaviors, they meet a certain criteria to warrant a diagnosis. And so that can be very different than what kind of the pop culture understanding of those labels can mean. And for us as evaluators, it's a way to understand a person's behaviors, also to understand what is their prognosis for future behaviors and inform our treatment recommendations and how to get them on the right path. So how do you, how do you do that? I mean, I, you know, when, when I'm looking at narcissistic descriptions and, um, and it is very popular today, there's lots of little online tests you can go to figure out if your partner has one of these labels. Um, what, what really does, how does testing, I guess, help really inform us in terms of what, what is going on? Certainly. And I think something that I try to drive home is that testing is actually a small portion of a psychological evaluation. And there are some some evaluations where I choose not to do testing because it's not appropriate for the person that I'm evaluating. So there actually are some evaluations I've done, especially recently, where there is no testing. Um, psychological evaluations are much larger than that. We want to get a full history. I jokingly tell my clients, everyone gets the first same question from me. When and where were you born? I start off at the very beginning. I want to understand how this person got to where we are today. We will request records from past mental health providers, medical providers. Um, I look at people's criminal backgrounds. I contact CPS to find out if there's any information from them. I call collaterals. It's really an involved process to get a full picture of how this person is functioning, not just within that relationship with their co-parent, because sometimes that relationship is very bad, everywhere else that person is functioning quite well. So if we just look at that one relationship, we can have a really skewed version of that person. So testing can help us understand and generate hypotheses that we want to ask more about, but testing um, is definitely not the only portion of the psychological evaluation. All right, that's really good to know. So let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about how does somebody even get to your office? At what point is, you know, I mean, or who who's deciding, who's asking for a psychological evaluation to be done? 
Certainly. I would say the majority of folks that I evaluate are sent to me by the court. So the court has identified that there is more information they need about this person's uh, psychological functioning before the court can make a decision about the best interest of the children. Um, because sometimes that's going to influence certain decisions about possession, access, or even decision making. And so most of the time, the court will order that the evaluation be done. Occasionally, parties will agree and they'll just come to an agreement and the attorneys will write what's called a rule 11 agreement and they'll just agree that both parties want one or both of the individuals to be evaluated. Is it possible to have an evaluation before a lawsuit even gets started? So if a spouse is concerned about the other spouse, do you ever see people voluntarily showing up for psychological evaluations? Occasionally, I would say it is definitely <laughs> not the norm. Um, usually litigation is involved in some way, shape or form, but sometimes it is very much both parties want to understand their strengths and weaknesses so they can come up with the best plan for their children. Are you usually doing just one party or is it both parties that are coming to you for the psychological evaluation? I would say it's usually a pretty even split. Um, sometimes both parties have concerns about each other. Sometimes I'll get one party that says, I agreed to do one just so that the other side will do one as well. And then sometimes it is very specific um, to one party and only one party is being evaluated. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the fact that this is much more than just testing. So testing is a component. Uh, it can be a component, unnecessarily will be a component. Yes. Um, what are the different tests that you're administering that, that can be part of the psychological evaluation? Certainly. There are a number of tests, and as an evaluator, I have a battery of tests that I'll choose from based on what the specific um, concerns are brought up. So when I introduce psychological testing to the clients, I say, you may or may not be taking a psychological assessment instrument, and until I have a better understanding of what the issues are, then I'll make a decision at that point on whether there will be testing and what that testing will look like. Um, but in general, most of the tests are self-reports. So this isn't a medical test. You're not gonna give a blood sample and I look at it and say, oh, looks like you're <laughs> depressed. Um, and it, it's not that straightforward. So the testing, again, just gives us more areas to look into and things that we might want to ask about, um, with the exception of substance abuse testing. Every now and then, when that's an issue, we will send people in for a urinalysis or a blood test or a hair or nail sample um, to get some objective data about their substance use. Okay, so the person who's being evaluated comes into your office, mm -hmm. and so they're going to be, when they are, if you decide to do a test, it's going to be a self-report test. What does that mean? And what does that mean in the context, I guess, of a litigation environment versus somebody maybe who's you know seeking treatment? Certainly. There is understandably an expectation that people in these types of litigation want to present themselves in the best way possible. Um, they want to us to, to think that they're functioning well. Um, and so sometimes that leads people to give a very inaccurate view of themselves. So what they report, we call it positive impression management. So they're giving us the answers they think we want to hear to have a positive view of them. Um, but we also, in our tests and the ones that I use, actually have norms that are specific for custody evaluations um, because we know that people in this situation are 
going to probably, like I said, want to put their best foot forward. Um, so we don't want to overpathologize and say, oh, you're not telling me the truth um, when they're doing something that we would expect of this population. But also, individuals who have mental illness sometimes don't really have a lot of insight into their functioning. And so they may be responding as honestly as they can, but they don't see themselves the way the rest of us see them. And they don't understand why they keep having these negative consequences or why things keep going off the rails because they don't have insight into themselves. So that's always going to be a limitation for um, self-report testing. And that's why all the other collateral information is so important. So we use the term collateral. It's sort of a fancy term. It is. Um, and, and, and I know that it really is talking about sort of other witnesses, other people who are involved in, in the person's life who may have important information. Who, what kind of collaterals? When somebody is selecting you know, who those collaterals are going to be that you're going to be talking with, what should they be thinking of? And, and who are the ones who are helpful and maybe not so helpful? Certainly. Well, I always, any professionals that are involved, so if people are in the middle of litigation, if they have a therapist, if they're seeing a parent facilitator, um, if they um, have a history of mental health services, I'm going to get those records and I want to talk to those people who have an objective neutral and professional view of this person and can talk to me knowledgeably about their functioning. Um, I do ask for personal collaterals too, because I think family and people who know these individuals way back when <laughs> and have seen them through all of this and have seen them in other contexts can also offer a lot of information. Sometimes we've got to take that with a grain of salt. You know, when you're talking to someone's mom, they're going to have <laughs> great things to say about them. But a lot of times I, I get, I think, more authenticity and more um, real reports than you would think, um, especially if the family also has concerns about the person and they want them to get help. They can be pretty um, transparent about the struggles the person has had, even back maybe into when they were a teenager, that the co-parent doesn't have that information. So they can be very helpful. I usually tell people, give me a couple of family members, but then give me some other people just so I get a well-rounded view. Otherwise, with family, I tend to get the same story kind of over and over and over again, <laughs> um, which is less helpful. But I'm really trying to get the best well-rounded view of this person in all areas of their life to understand how they function as a whole. Okay, that's really helpful. So you're not just going to be relying on maybe the, the other partner who um, has a whole list of complaints uh, that they're going to bring to you, Correct. but really you're going to be looking beyond that. Yes, I use the co-parent to inform me of, usually my question to the co-parent is, why did you want this evaluation of your co-parent? What were your concerns? Um, so that I'm sure to address and I'm not relying on the parent to tell me, well, this is what my co-parent is concerned about. Um, because again, sometimes there's not been great communication about that. Exactly. Um, all right, so I, I wanna distinguish, because this can be really confusing, um, you know, when we're in the realm of mental health issues in a custody case, we have all kinds of different professionals. We have psychiatrists and psychologists, therapists, and they all have different roles. Um, what is the difference between a psychological evaluation versus a custody evaluation? Yes, so custody evaluations are much more involved of the whole family than psychological evaluations. Psychological evaluations really have a very narrow scope. It's does the person have a mental illness 
And if so, how does that affect their ability to parent and co-parent or does it at all? Um, custody evaluators look at the entire family. They meet the children, they come to your home, they get records for everybody. And it's a comparison evaluation between parent A and parent B. And what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And using that information into what is the best fit for the children as far as a parenting plan. And it is the custody, only in the custody evaluation, because the, can the evaluator, I'm sorry, evaluator actually make a recommendation for the child as to the issues of conservatorship and possession. Correct? Absolutely. So our statute um, only gives that right to make access, possession, conservatorship recommendations to custody evaluators. Psychological evaluators, we tend to make treatment recommendations. So if there's, again, things that we've noticed that are a problem, we can say, here's what we would recommend to address those issues. Okay, so that was the other thing I was going to ask you is really then what is the goal of the psychological evaluation? Is it to assess whether one of those labels fits? Um, is it to really help come up with a treatment plan if, in fact, there are some issues that are, are diagnosed? Um, are you diagnosing in a, in a psychological evaluation? That is... Uh, an incredibly hot topic right now. <laughs> um, and people get very fired up about that. Um, and we really have two camps, you know, the ones that do say we should be diagnosing and the ones that we don't. Um, I am personally solidly in the we should be diagnosing uh, camp. Um, but I understand the concerns from the other side, which is that diagnostic labels can be misused um, if they're not explained. And that's where I feel that it is our responsibility as evaluators to do that. We have to explain rather than just say, you know, mom has bipolar disorder and then kind of drop the proverbial microphone and walk away. We have to explain what does that mean. And we always have to tie it into the psycholegal question, which is how does this affect their ability to parent and co-parent? Because some individuals have psychological disorders that don't affect their parenting at all. Mm -hmm. And they're absolutely wonderful parents. And so we as evaluators need to explain that so that these labels don't get misused um, and kind of waved around in court to mean something that they don't. Exactly, and I know it's really common, you know, if, if you're a parent who's been in a relationship with a high conflict type personality, and this comes up a lot, yes. um, to, you know, feel like that the goal is to come up with that diagnosis. The goal is to label them and then that somehow gives us the answers we need. And it doesn't necessarily, because like you just said, there are people who, who may fall within you know, certain parameters of a diagnosis, but are perfectly great parents. And so it doesn't really tell us everything we need to know. Certainly, and sometimes I get individuals who they have a diagnosis already, they've been diagnosed. And what I'm really looking for is how are they managing it? Um, some of these uh, illnesses are like, I always liken it to diabetes, where it's a lifelong illness, but you can manage your symptoms. And so there's plenty of folks who, even with serious mental illnesses, successfully manage their symptoms to the point you would never know that they were ill unless they told you, um, because they figured out what works for them and they've done the work that they need to do to be stable. And I love when I get a chance to explain that to the court, because that is something that I, I try to, it's one of my many soapboxes, but it's one which is mental illness does not mean that people are inherently a bad parent or co-parent. I have plenty of folks that don't meet very criteria for diagnosis who are not doing well in those two areas and they think, well, I wasn't diagnosed with anything, 
but their behaviors are really problematic. It just doesn't meet that very specific definition in our diagnostic manual. So that brings up an interesting point because there certainly are clusters of behavior that are just, they're, they're just, I, they're not diagnosable, right? Certainly. But, but they just tend to create maybe more conflict in a relationship or sure. more stress for a child or something. But you don't have to have a diagnosis to be a, a bad parent. <laughs> Certainly. Well, and especially in when I get folks right as they're separating, a lot of there's a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of high emotion that may cause them to behave in a way that they wouldn't normally behave. And once they start to process the end of their marriage, they start to adjust to, hey, we're we're going to be separated. That means I'm not going to see my child every day. And they start to address those issues. You see those behaviors go away. That's not mental illness, but it's still problematic at the time. And so part of our job as, as evaluators is to make that distinction between what is related to mental illness that we would expect to persist long after these these uh, parents have gotten on the right path of co-parenting and things like that versus what might be purely situational that can be worked on uh, in therapy or might help with just a little bit of time. I know one of the things that um, people come into my office and have questions about is, you know, if they've gone through a period of depression mm -hmm. and that's in their medical history, is that going to hurt them? Um, and how is that going to, you know, how, how will an evaluator look at that if there's been that history? And in my experience, what I've seen is that, you know, when somebody has taken ownership and really been accountable and followed through with treatment recommendations, like that's a, somebody who can be in a much stronger position than somebody who was never diagnosed, but, you know, went untreated. Certainly. And I think that really speaks to the stigma that we still have with mental health. Because again, if you were to cross this into a medical thing, if you had diabetes and you were like, well, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to take care of it. We would all be, you know, Jennifer, what are you doing? Um, but with mental health, they get that. And I, I, as an evaluator, I have a very neutral stance. People don't get a lot from me, but internally I, I have thoughts. And I always cringe when they say, I want to do therapy, but my attorney told me not to do it mm -hmm. because then my records are going to be admissible um, or discoverable. And that really just hurts my heart when I hear that because, again, as a professional, I want to see people being able to look at themselves and go, here's where I'm struggling. And if I can't get there on my own, I have enough to go and, and find somebody who can help me when the issues are too big. Um, I'm a firm believer. We all need therapy <laughs> um, to, some, to some extent. I mean, life is, life is crazy. But I am looking for not just what are the symptoms there, but how is a person managing it? Are they addressing it? Are they just kind of pretending it's not there and hoping it goes away? Um, which will help me with their treatment recommendations. But sometimes it is at the at the urging of their attorneys. And, and that's where when we have conversations with attorneys, I always try to sneak that in there a little bit. I think it's really important because this is not just, you know, how do I strategically maneuver my case to win in court that day? It's really about how do you have the most successful life? How do you how do you build the most successful relationships with your children and you know succeed outside of the courtroom? Courtroom is just a day, and I think it's so important that people are you know putting on their oxygen mask first or whatever. And not only that, but you're also teaching your children yes. what to do when life presents with challenging circumstances. And getting help is something that can be so 
incredibly important in that process. Yeah, and, and the children are always the one who are going to receive the outcome at the end. So whether a parent is taking care of themselves or not, the child is going to reap the consequences of that behavior. And so, you know, I, I do encourage parents um, when I do have my therapy clients that helping themselves ultimately that is going to help their children because they're going to be able to be the best parent they can be for that child. That's exactly right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the misuse of the process and how you see people maybe trying to gain some leverage by by bringing in uh, an evaluator or um, trying to, you know, poise labels upon the other party. Certainly. Um, in 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 the misuse, I see more people coming in with really false expectations of okay. what they are going and what we as evaluators are going to say. So um, it's not uncommon that I'll get a parent coming in and they're expressing their concerns about their co-parent. And I get the distinct impression that what they're looking for is they want me to tell them they're not the problem. It's the other, other person. It's the other parent because the other person has this psychological issue. Um, and that is not what we do in these evaluations. So some people ask for these because they really want themselves to be validated that they're doing things right and it's not their fault. Um, and again, that's just not what we do. Um, so sometimes individuals have that expectation. Sometimes attorneys are looking for the label. Um, and again, I feel as evaluators, if we do our job, it becomes very hard to misuse those labels because we explain. Um, I even have a paragraph in my evaluations that says, just because someone has a mental illness doesn't mean that they are incapable of being a good parent and co-parent. And then I go on to explain it. Um, so sometimes people are looking for that quick label that they can then use in court. Um, and again, as evaluators, it's our job to make sure that doesn't happen. And I think one of the most important things that comes out of the evaluation is a treatment. If there if there are issues, then kind of what, what are the next steps for the person? Certainly. And, and there's no reason to lose hope. I mean, you know, if you've had an evaluation and it's recommended a treatment program, roll up your sleeves and get to work. And you know, that, that can completely turn things around. Absolutely. And I, in my, the way my evaluations are structured, I end with recommendations. And to me, I look at that as here's your path forward. And I can't make them walk that path. But if you want to see improvements, if you want to address the issues that we've identified in the evaluation, here are ways to do it. Um, I don't know that I've ever had an evaluation where I had no recommendations, where I just went, <laughs> This well, person is hopeless. You know, we you, can't help them. You did just tell us that everybody would do well with therapy. So probably I'm guessing that we would. And right, I agree. I right, love therapy. So. Right. Absolutely. But, you know, sometimes people get really scared of some of the more, we call them serious mental health disorders. So schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, those types of things. All of those have treatments. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's not going to be a, a situation where I just go, you know, I'm sorry, this is going to be as good as it gets. It is reliant on the person to then follow the treatment recommendations, right. which doesn't always happen. But we're going to give you a path forward because as an evaluator, my goal is let's identify the problems, but then also let me give you the solutions. Right. And and some of those more serious things that you were just mentioning in some ways can be easier to treat if the 
person is actually willing to do the work, right? Absolutely. So some of the more serious, like I said, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, one of your frontline treatments is going to be medication. And finding the right medication combination can be a little bit tricky and it can be a little bit frustrating. Um, but for other disorders, personality disorders, which oftentimes people come in thinking that their co-parent has a personality disorder, um, the frontline treatment for that is therapy. And it's a lot of really difficult therapy work. <laughs> Intense therapy. Yes. So let's just, I, uh, as we kind of explore this a little bit more, talking about some of those popular pop psychology um, labels. Um, I, it was interesting to me in the, doing this work of really learning the difference between a full-blown personality disorder versus somebody who has some traits. And, Certainly. you know, the culture that we live in, I think, is one that, um, like, celebrates some narcissistic traits. I mean, that's that we see a lot of that. Um, what, you know, I guess, what is the distinguishing factor? How do you begin or what do you tell somebody if they think that their partner is, you know, narcissistic or borderline? Um you know, what What are the difference between the, the traits versus an actual disorder? Certainly. I think one of the things that I always keep in mind from graduate school, um, when we started to learn about personality disorders, our instructor stood up and he said, on your worst day, you will meet criteria for a personality disorder. And sometimes maybe not even your worst day, just a bad day. Um, and I've always kept that in my mind, which is the situation can cause us to behave in ways that are unusual to us and may be appropriate to the situation, but is not a general way that we function. So when I'm looking for personality disorders, again, I'm going to look at that relationship, that co-parenting relationship, but then I'm gonna look at how that person is functioning in all the other areas of their life. Are they having problems in their other friendships, family relationships? Are they struggling at work? Are they getting fired because they can't get along with people or they have certain behaviors that are not acceptable? I wanna see problematic behaviors across time and across situation. Because your personality, if you really think about it, your personality is who you are. It's at your core. You take it with you wherever you go. It's not just the situation. And so when I have diagnosed people with personality disorders, and I don't do that a whole lot because it really is a, a pretty um, high bar to, to get those diagnoses. But when I do, I am looking for problematic behaviors in a bunch of different areas and over time. So it's not something that just occurred once litigation started, because that might be being driven by the situation. Mm. And that's where maybe we see some of those traits, but they're not as persistent or long lasting as a full disorder. Certainly. And the other thing that I heard you say, and I think this is such an important point to drive home, is if you are in a relationship or uh, you know, you're a parent with somebody who does have these strong traits and they definitely are presenting in high conflict ways, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're off the hook, right? And that Certainly. there are things that you can do um, to help make your situation better. Absolutely. And when I work with therapy clients, that's a big focus of what we have. And my therapy clients probably hate when I say this, but I always tell them, I say, even if the other person is responsible for 99% of the problems you have, you're responsible for that 1%. And let's focus on that 1% that you can work on. Um, and oftentimes individuals are a little bit resistant to that. And once we start getting into the work, they start to see, oh, here's maybe how I uh, fueled the situation, or if I had taken a different approach, maybe things could have been a little bit different and just owning their part of it. Um, and sometimes I've got two parents who are both 
have pathologies <laughs> um, that seem to fit together until they don't. And then we've got to kind of separate those out and see um, where things go. The one, one of the things that I've always sort of in my in myself tried to recognize is that tendency to blame. If I am wanting to blame my discomfort or my hurt or my situation on somebody else, it's really a, a, a red flag or, or really a sign that there's an opportunity here for me to do some of my own personal growth. Certainly. And I think that when we do have parents who come in and they want that blame piece there, I think that's one of the reasons they're very disappointed with psychological evaluations because we look at behavior in a very non-judgmental way. Um, and part of that may be because we know that it can all be changed. And so we're not going to say, well, you're doing X, Y, and Z, you're bad. Um, that's not going to be our position. We really look at behavior in a clinical, um, almost sterile kind of way as, okay, these patterns of behavior are leading to these negative outcomes. How can we help this individual um, stop those patterns? So when somebody is coming in for a psychological evaluation, one of the feedbacks I will hear from time to time from my clients is that it does feel very sterile. It's not like going to visit with you as in your role as a therapist, in your role as the evaluator, it is much more clinical and it can be a little surprising. So I guess I would, I would wanna just talk briefly, what should somebody expect when they're coming in for a psychological evaluation. Certainly, it is a different, it's a very different role. It's so different. In fact, I have all my therapy clients on one day and I have my evaluation clients on other days so that I can be in that role and I'm not switching hats back and <laughs> forth because it's difficult as, as evaluators. And the reason that we have, and, and I explain this to folks and once they hear this, it kind of goes, oh, okay, that makes sense. We keep that emotional distance so we can maintain our objectivity. So when I'm working with someone in therapy, we have a therapeutic alliance. I'm connected to that person. There's a lot of empathy going back and forth, and I'm an advocate for that person. Um, as an evaluator, I'm a neutral person. And so I explain to them up front, I say, you're going to be talking about very difficult things, and I'm going to be sitting here just taking notes because I'm more a gatherer of data and then analyzing that data versus really getting in the trenches with the, the clients and helping them. So as far as what they can expect, they should expect a very um, wide range of questions. Um, folks are often surprised when I start off with, when and where were you born? They go, oh, we're going back that far. And I say, well, you didn't spontaneously appear when someone <laughs> filed litigation. So I want to understand your whole story because oftentimes there are little bits and pieces along the way that I go, aha. Now I understand how we got where we where we are, and that can help me get you to where you need to go. Um, so again, you might have testing. Some individuals have testing. I would say the majority of my cases I do testing, um, but especially if I have individuals who are not from the United States, our tests are mostly normed on American values. Um, I may Minnesota, choose- Minnesota, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Minnesota farmers right, are ex the norm. <laughs> exactly, and so um, if you give that to somebody from another culture, they may look very pathological pathological, not because they are, but because they have different values. They're raised differently. So we try to be sensitive to things like that. Um, you should expect us to request um, records and request that you sign releases so that we can get records. And usually the orders will say that the clients have to sign the releases that we ask them to. And sometimes if individuals have concerns about certain records, I'll sit and I'll talk with them about it. I want to understand their concerns. Um, oftentimes it's marital therapists and they felt like that therapist was not on their side or was biased against them. And I have that and I make a note of that, but then I still get the records because I need to know what was going on. Um, so I think it's a lot more involved 
um, than people think. Um, they think they're going to come in and just fill out a bubble sheet and go on their <laughs> merry way. Right. Um, and then when I tell them it's four appointments, they get they get quite surprised. Yeah. And, and you really are delving into, you know, the in, intimate parts of a person's life. I mean, yes. it is, you know, you're, you're going back to the beginning and you're asking for those those points, those pain points. And I will say, I mean, I often tell my clients, look, I mean, nobody comes out of a psych eval perfectly. You don't get 100 on it, right? Like it's, <laughs> People I, ask me, did I pass my <laughs> test? And I said, no, um, we don't grade it like that. We don't grade it like that. So it's not a pass-fail. And, you know, it, it really is about providing information and more insight into who you are. And we would know what motivates you, what your strengths are, and maybe those areas of growth. Certainly. And I always tell parents, I say, there's no perfect parents and there's no perfect co-parents. I said, you know, I'm a parent. I'm not a perfect parent. <laughs> um, so any feedback that I'm going to give you, you know, take it in that in that regard. Yeah, yeah. But it, it is hard. And it's certainly this is information that the other side will probably be trying to use um, in a litigation context. So it is important, you know, to just know and understand what that process is. And, um, you know, I, I think as we kind of come to the end of our time together, which is, has been so interesting and so, so fascinating to me, what, um, what message of hope do you have for somebody maybe who's out there struggling right now, maybe they've been, you know, called in for a psychological evaluation and they're really worried about, you know, if their mental health is being called into question. Certainly. I think, again, my my number one soapbox is it, just because you may have a diagnosis, it doesn't mean that you're not a great parent and you're not a great co-parent. Or if you are struggling and there are behaviors that you can make those changes, um, you've got to do the work, but those changes can be made. So again, it's not simply you have this label and this is as good as it gets. There's always a path forward. Um, and it's about getting connected to the right professionals who are gonna help you get to that path. I think it's a great message. As I've heard it said, we all have mental health one way or another. So, Absolutely. you know, learning to take care of it and, and looking for those opportunities for growth is yes. always a good thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Dr. Harvey and her practice here in North Texas, we will include a link so you can get in contact with her. We thank you for tuning in today. And if you enjoyed this, of course, we'd love it if you would share the video and uh, please do subscribe for future episodes. Thank you.